will be sent to readers upon the receipt of a self-addressed stamped envelope. The editor has come to the conclusion that Mrs. Emerson's description is the most accurate and that she was, as she always was, right. And now, The Ape Who Guards the Balance. Book One, Opening the Mouth of the Dead. Let my mouth be given to me. Let my mouth be opened by Ptah, with the instrument of iron with which he opens the mouths of the gods. Chapter One. I was inserting an additional pin into my hat, when the library door opened, and Emerson put his head out. There is a matter on which I would like to consult you, Peabody, he began. He'd obviously been working on his book, for his thick black hair was dishevelled, his shirt gaped open, and his sleeves had been rolled above the elbows. Emerson claims that his mental processes are inhibited by the constriction of collars, cuffs, and cravats. It may be so. I certainly did not object, for my husband's muscular frame and sun-bronzed skin are displayed to best advantage in such a state of dishabille. On this occasion, however, I was forced to repress the emotion the sight of Emerson always arouses in me, since Gargery, our butler, was present. "'Pray do not detain me, my dear Emerson,' I replied. I am on my way to chain myself to the railings at number 10 Downing Street, and I am already late. Chain yourself, Emerson repeated. May I ask why? It was my idea, I explained modestly. During some earlier demonstrations, the lady suffragists have been picked up and carried away by large policemen, thus effectively ending the demonstration. This will not be easily accomplished if the ladies are firmly fastened to an immovable object such as an iron railing. I see. Opening the door wider, he emerged. Would you like me to accompany you, Peabody? I could drive you in the motor car. It would have been difficult to say which suggestion horrified me more, that he should go with me or that he should drive the motor car. Emerson had been wanting for several years to acquire one of the horrid machines, but I had put him off by one pretext or another until that summer. I had taken all the precautions I could, promoting one of the stablemen to the post of chauffeur and making certain he was properly trained. I had insisted that if the children were determined to drive the nasty thing, which they were, they should also take lessons. David and Ramses had become as competent as male individuals of their age could be expected to be, and in my opinion, Nefret was even better, though the men in the family denied it. None of these sensible measures succeeded in fending off the dreaded results. Emerson, of course, refused to be driven by the chauffeur or the younger members of the family. It hadn't taken long for the word to get round the village and its environs. One glimpse of Emerson crouched over the wheel, his teeth bared in a delighted grin, his blue eyes sparkling behind his goggles, was enough to strike terror into the heart of pedestrian or driver. The hooting of the horn, which Emerson liked very much and employed incessantly, 
had the same effect as a fire siren. Everyone within earshot immediately cleared off the road, into a ditch or a hedgerow, if necessary. He had insisted on bringing the confounded thing with us to London, but thus far we had managed to keep him from operating it in the city. Many years of happy marriage had taught me that there are certain subjects about which husbands are strangely sensitive. Any challenge to their masculinity should be avoided at all costs. For some reason that eludes me, the ability to drive a motor car appears to be a symbol of masculinity. I therefore sought another excuse for refusing his offer. No, my dear Emerson, it would not be advisable for you to go with me. In the first place, you have a great deal of work to do on the final volume of your History of Ancient Egypt. In the second place, the last time you accompanied me on such an expedition, you knocked down two policemen. And so I will do again, if they have the audacity to lay hands on you, Emerson exclaimed. As I had hoped, this comment distracted him from the subject of the motor car. His blue eyes blazed with sapphirine fire, and the cleft, or dimple, in his chin quivered. Good gad, Peabody! You don't expect me to stand idly by while vulgar police officers manhandle my wife? No, my dear, I don't, which is why you cannot come along. The whole point of the enterprise is for me to be arrested. Yes, and manhandled as well. Having you taken in charge for assaulting a police officer distracts the public from the fight for women's suffrage we ladies are endeavouring. Damnation, Peabody! Emerson stamped his foot. He is given to such childish demonstrations at times. Will you please stop interrupting me, Emerson? I was about to... You never let me finish a sentence, Emerson shouted. I turned to our butler, who was waiting to open the door for me. My parasol, Gargery, if you please. Certainly, madam, said Gargery. His plain but affable features were wreathed in a smile. Gargery greatly enjoys the affectionate little exchanges between me and Emerson. If I may say so, madam, he went on, that hat is very becoming. I turned back to the mirror. The hat was a new one, and I rather thought it did suit me. I had caused it to be trimmed with crimson roses and green silk leaves. The subdued colours considered appropriate for mature Maddock ladies have an unfortunate effect on my sallow complexion and jetty black hair, and I see no reason for a slavish adherence to fashion when the result does not become the wearer. Besides, crimson is Emerson's favourite colour. As I inserted the final pin, his face appeared in the mirror next to mine. He had to bend over, since he is six feet in height, and I am a good many inches shorter. Taking advantage of our relative positions, and the position of Gargery, behind him, he gave me a surreptitious pat, and said amiably, So it is. Well, well, my dear. Enjoy yourself. If you aren't back by tea-time, I will just run down to the police station and bail you out. Don't come round before seven, I said. I am hoping to be thrown into the Black Maria and perhaps handcuffed. Not quite sotto voce, Gargery remarked, I'd like to see the chap who could do it.
So would I, said my husband. It was a typical November day in dear old London, gloomy, grey and damp. We'd come up from Kent only the previous week so that Emerson could consult certain references in the British Museum. Our temporary abode was Chalfond House, the city mansion belonging to Emerson's brother Walter and his wife Evelyn, who'd inherited the property from her grandfather. The younger Emersons preferred their country estates in Yorkshire, but they always opened Chalfond House for us when we were obliged to stay in London. Although I enjoy the bustle and busyness of the metropolis, Egypt is my spiritual home, and as I breathed in the insalubrious mixture of coal smoke and moisture, I thought nostalgically of clear blue skies, hot, dry air, the thrill of another season of excavation. We were a trifle later than usual in getting off this year, but the delay occasioned principally by Emerson's tardiness in completing his long-awaited history, had given me the opportunity to participate in a cause dear to my heart. And my spirits soared as I strode briskly along, my indispensable parasol in one hand, my chains in the other. Though I had always been a strong supporter of votes for women, Professional commitments had prevented me from taking an active part in the suffragist movement. Not that the movement itself had been particularly active or effective. Almost every year a women's suffrage bill had been presented to Parliament, only to be talked down or ignored. Politicians and statesmen had made promises of support and broken them. Recently, however,